Hello, John from the Lib Dem Podcast here. We are delighted to say that this episode is sponsored by Prater Reigns. Now more than ever, you need a professional-looking online presence and website. Prater Reigns have been helping Liberal Democrat campaigns succeed for 18 years. Their Lib Dem Foci package combines a website, social media and email system to help Lib Dems win. You'll receive great support from real people, fair pricing and a huge range of features to choose from. Prater Reigns are already the bespoke developers for Lighthouse, Lib Dem Draw Online and the LD Directory. They combine a talented system design with an unrivaled understanding of our party, our data and our systems. To find out more, check out the Prater Reigns website at praterains.co.uk slash liberal-democrats. Now, on with the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Lib Dem podcast. My name is John Potter and we're here with a, another episode looking into what's going on at the moment. And joining me is my uh, founder-in-chief of the podcast, uh, Councillor Richard Kemp uh, from Hello. Liverpool. And we are delighted to be joined by a third leader, uh, which is Rhys Taylor, the leader of the Cardiff Lib Dems. Welcome, Rhys, to the podcast. Afternoon, afternoon. So... We were, we're going to talk a little bit about politics and what's going on at the moment in in Wales, but also latest updates in, involving the virus as well. So, I mean, Rhys, you know, you're our first, I think, oh, no, no, I was going to say you're our first Welsh guest, you're not. We just had Jane Dodds, who's the leader of the Welsh Lib Dems. If I promoted you over it, I'd get in all sorts of trouble. So, how, how's everything in Cardiff, Rhys? Things in Cardiff, I mean, they're definitely looking better than they are across the border in terms of the, the virus. Um you know, we, we're in a far stronger position in terms of schools returning. Um, and I think, you know, people are feeling a lot more confident about how things are progressing in Wales. Um, and yeah, as a, a newly elected leader um, for a council group, um, a global health pandemic, which shut down, <laughs> shut down the economy and, you know, kicked a lot of public services into gear. It's been a bit of a learning curve. So just to let viewers know that, uh, Reese, you became a councillor and then straight away became the leader of a group so that that must have been fun within within three years yeah yeah so I had a, a bit of time to settle in but um first term not I wouldn't you know I didn't think in my first term I'd be leader of a group um let's put it that way how long were you leader before you became leader Richard uh of the Liverpool group uh 30 years but I was leader of all sorts of things in the meantime uh I I found it a damn sight easier to lead four and a half thousand councillors nationally as we had uh, when I was started to become the leader of the LGA group than the 62 we had in Liverpool at that time. Uh, but uh, good luck to you. Uh, I do think we need more young people to do things. Uh, and I've no doubt that you do things, Reese, differently than I would. And that's a good thing because I know that there's an element in which people who've been doing it as long as I have are stuck in, a, in the past. It's difficult for us to change. And so I welcome young people. I used to think John Potter was young as a group leader, but... Uh, the, the not quite squeezed middle is what I, <laughs> I'm going for. Um, Your middle you, isn't squeezed, John, it must be so. <laughs> no, not at all. No, not with lockdown. Um, Reese, you have to... Be willing to give insults and take them if you're going to be on this podcast. Yeah, that's, that's right. Fine, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting we talk about leadership because what what's coming on at the moment, it's the first time really the press has gone into, is where is Boris Johnson? 
you know, where is he? We've had an absolutely traumatic kind of two weeks in, involving the exam fiasco, everything. And it, it, it seems to be classic, this government at the moment, is if something happens, throw some civil servants in front of the camera and hide. And, and it's just great. I mean, can any of us think of ever doing that from a council point of view where the, the lead politician would not be front and centre if an issue came up? No, well, I'll tell I you where he isn't. He ain't in a tent in Scotland, is he? Because they use an old photograph of him when he was still ugly and fat. Now he's just ugly. Uh, and a tent with nothing happening around it. Uh, and there's a luxury lot yacht just off the coast. They must think we're stupid. Well, quite a few people did vote for him, I suppose. So perhaps there's an element of truth in that. Well, I just hope he's not walking in the Welsh hills because I don't really fancy another election anytime. <laughs> no, that is, that is um, true. Let's hope he's not there. Yeah. But, I mean, we, we're going to have a, a conversation with Kirsty Williams in the future about education, but we, we, we have to touch on the crisis that's happened in this last week. I mean, it has been... Can you imagine the government making a, a bigger foul-up of this? But what's really interesting, we've just done an interview uh, with Molly Nolan, who is a, a, our Scottish... Uh, candidate for the Highlands next year for the Scottish Parliament and the, the SNP made a complete and utter balls up of it and then and then the government saw that and then decided no let's not learn from it I mean could they have handled this any worse Westminster Reese, you can start on this well I think you know what the SNP did from what from from what I saw of it was just lockdown they refused to admit that there was a that there was a problem um and then later came forward with you know with some solutions to what they were facing and then westminster just didn't seem to have even clocked that there would you know there was this backlash to, to what happened in scotland and i think you know we've faced similar a similar situation in wales where the algorithm didn't you know didn't enjoy the confidence that you know that was hoped of it um but i think you know what what kirsty did was come out and say look this is what has happened. This is what we're going to do about it. These are some of the things we're going to do in the first instance to ameliorate some of the, you know, what we know is going to be some of the negative impact of that on A-level results. And then she apologised, you know, and, and the response to that in comparison to what we've seen in Westminster, which has been very cold and, and very arrogant in how it's, you know, responded to genuine concerns from young people has been absolutely astonishing. But I think, you know, it's just more of the same from, from the conservatives and it's more of the same from this brand of conservatism and and boris johnson in 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 particular yes i always think it's a, the most important thing you do if you make a mistake is apologize because in some ways that always draws a line under it look we made a mistake particularly in these circumstances no one's had to do anything like this before we're struggling we're doing our best we failed in this way people say yeah that's fair enough but the trouble with the Westminster government is they've always tried to pretend they've got everything under control, even when it was quite clear that they hadn't. Again, if we go back to the, uh, the testing, uh, they were going to get uh, up to 100,000, if I remember rightly, by the end of May. They only did that by fiddling the books. If they'd said, we've had a really good go at this and haven't quite made it, people have said, well done. Bung a load of stuff in the post, most of which didn't come back and claim you've done it makes them look stupid. So I think some people should have learned how to be better politicians than this. Uh, but I suspect if you're a Bullingdon boy, mm. that won't occur to you, the element of humility. I think, uh, coming from over the border, that Kirsty has done well, 
but mistakes were made in Wales as elsewhere. Yeah, but I think, you know, I think we're getting to a point now where this sort of thing really further knocks what little trust people have in politics and in politicians. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't got the guts and you haven't, if you haven't got the, you know, the, um, the integrity to stand up and say, look, we got it wrong and this is what we're not doing right and this is what we need to, need to do better, then I really, you know, you know, we've just had votes of 16 year olds in Wales. If if you don't give people a reason to believe that things can change and that politicians are human, you know, politicians are human, we seem to forget that. But when you behave like you do in Westminster, where nothing seems to, you know, it's like water off a duck's back, then, um, you know, we're not going to give people any reason to believe that things can then can change. And I think it's really damaging um, long term um, if we can't have those open and honest conversations of what we need to do better. And I'd be interested, just, sorry, John. No, Kyle, Richard, go on. I'd be interested just to leave aside the education thing, because we are going to discuss it with Kirsty on another occasion, just to look at the differences between the English system and the Welsh system of local government uh, and how you've been supported by the Welsh, uh, uh, the Welsh Parliament. Uh, and just to give you an idea, my own authority is something like £51 million adrift. And we were told by the Secretary of State that uh, just get on with things, we'll watch your back. And that meant very clearly in financial terms, and they aren't doing. So the way that the government responded to the coronavirus and the aftermath and the effect on council has been dreadful. What's your experience uh, in Cardiff of the Welsh Assembly government? Things have been far better, I think, in Wales. So Welsh government have stumped up around half a billion pounds worth of funding for local government to replace... um, in, in the main additional costs on services in responding to COVID. So um, when you're looking, you know, PPE in it on its own has been a massive cost. Um, and particularly where, as, as Cardiff has done, Cardiff has set up its own supply chain separate to that that's been offered through Public Health Wales and the NHS. Um, you know, so the Welsh Government has agreed to to recoup those costs for councils. But what, what's really concerning for those councils that are massively dependent on income generation yeah. is that we have no idea what that means for the future you know that's a massive hole in and of itself at the moment um but what you know what does that mean in in the future in terms of the borrowing that's already happening and the debt that councils already have but the situation has been better in wales but in terms of the long-term picture i think it's i really worry about what this means for frontline services um mm. if if there isn't some sort of national mechanism to get this if we, if UK government doesn't say what right, we're going to invest in public services and we're going to invest in our infrastructure and meaningfully spend on our economy, um, then I don't know what that means for things like social services and children's services that are already really massively squeezed. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we, I, I had a, an overview and scrutiny committee meeting with a finance cabinet member and the finance officers at, at Preston. And again, that statement, don't forget what the government said at the start of this, do, said to councils, do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes and we'll look after you. No council I know now thinks that the government is going to cover all their costs. That is just, they just don't believe that's going to happen. That's regardless of what colour that council is. They, councils are preparing to have a significant financial hit from COVID. Some, obviously we've got coming down the road is the local government reorganisation as well, where someone say, well, you know, if a whole load of councils start getting close to going uh, going bust and not being viable anymore, 
then it kind of leads the Tories to say, well, we're going to reform them anyway. We're going to do away with two-tier councils. Okay, not an issue probably for either of you two, because I used to uh, are both kind of single-tier authorities, but for the double-tier authorities, then that's, you know, it's very worrying, you know, because you're trying to do a five-year budget and not knowing, A, if you're going to exist in a couple of years, or B, what the actual full impact of COVID is going to be. It's it's incredibly tough situation to be in. Mm. But there, there is, has, has been talk about three years ago of reorganisation in Wales because you've got some very small unitary councils there, which we wouldn't normally think could be effective. If I look along the North Wales coast, I think there are six along the coast, which are one constituency's worth. And how they can provide a full spread of services is, is actually beyond me. Yeah, so local government in Wales, I don't remember the exact dates, but between... between um, the Welsh Parliament being established in 99 and the current model that we have, um, local government has gone through reorganisation twice, I think, maybe, mm. or maybe once before devolution and once after. Mm. And it's it's been discussed ever since. Um, we've gone through two commissions um, looking at local government boundaries. But I think what we need to, in a way, you know, 22 local government to local authorities in Wales is probably too many. Um, the problem is, is that we, we attach to that reducing the number of councillors, which I don't think is mm. necessarily the right thing to do. And we probably wouldn't agree with that as, as Lib Dems. But um, what we, I think what we forget and what I think what COVID has shown us actually is that if we take, if we take organisational boundaries and organisational you know, practice and procedures out of this, what you can deliver for people and deliver, deliver for communities. And I think if that's the conversation that we have, Mm. we're probably going to be in a better position like okay 22 doesn't work but what are we trying to let's start with a blank bit of paper rather than as one minister did just you know draw some new lines on the map and say hey presto here's what we've got that's going to deliver you know the best local services that we that we can deliver so i think we kind of need to start having a more nuanced conversation which we always like to do as lib dems mm. um, <laughs> how we make that interesting to the public um because yeah you know i think i'm, I'm not i'm not too familiar with the, the discussions in England but you know let's talk to people what they want from their public services and start from there um, but at the moment I think you know COVID gives us that gives us that opportunity for it's whether the you know UK government is willing to, um, to take that. Yeah and, and perhaps the other thing that we could share is, is trying to do things from the bottom up rather than the top down as Lib Dems how do community councils work? Because does, does everywhere have a community council? So well, like it's a bit like council. our town council system yeah. that they're yeah. in some places, not others. They're more prevalent in, in rural areas. Um, so really? when I was in uni university in North Wales, most places had a town community council. They're less prevalent in urban areas. I don't have one in my ward, um, but in my constituency of Cardiff North, there are three i think in in the very north of the constituency um but it's yeah it, it depends on geography and um there has been a tendency i'm not i'm not too sure what it's like in england to shift some services to community councils some of that's been proactive some of it's been reactive to what's you know cuts in local I, and i think you're right i think whatever happens well reorganization is going to happen in england yeah. and i think what will what will become a vital part of that from a a local point of view is actually more neighborhood parish community councils because you're right because it's generally been you know leafy little villages uh i think in the, where they have their own little parish council you know we set up 
a the first kind of urban council parish kind of neighborhood council in Preston um and it's and it's been it does allow a level of flexibility that you don't get from from boroughs and counties and also it's it's hyper local so it can deal with a particular planning issue it can deal with a, a particular safety concern like or if it needed a new defibrillator at the local community center so these are, are vital i think i think what lib dems will have to realize when the reorganizations come because there will like you say reese there'll be a lot of people going oh my goodness all these councillors or councils are going to get wiped out think proactively okay what can we keep yeah or take from the boroughs and make even more local to help those residents i think that's i think that's where lib dems are going to be because as much as this is a personal opinion and what you guys think i'm not sure local government reorganization is going to be particularly high on the agenda of most voters you know yeah. when we've got all this other stuff going on if we become the party of anti-local government reorganization i don't think anyone's going to give two monkeys about it to be honest with you yeah, but in, in a situation like in Liverpool, where the Labour control council is becoming increasingly unpopular, mm. you put it the other way around. Wouldn't it be nice if we in Allerton could run our own services and take some of them from those people in the town hall? So it's always how you express it. I mean, devolution didn't work in England because it was expressed the wrong way. Uh, with a ridiculous question up in the northeast, but the more yeah. we relate to people's lived experience, we want to do more decision making near your street, your school, your this, your that. Then people will be interested. But if you talk about devolution per se, certainly in England, no one gives a damn. No, no. It needs to have. I think the important thing is it needs to have teeth. Otherwise, it's another layer of government that doesn't work for people. And that was part of the frustration with with the Welsh. Parliament, the Welsh Assembly as it was in the you know the first two terms, it had very little decision making powers. Mm. Um, it would you know it was tweaking things around the edges, and there was some innovative stuff that came from that. But it's only been the last term, last two terms, where it's had proper primary lawmaking powers. Oh, and we haven't got it right. You know, devolution has stopped in Cardiff Bay. There's a lot more to do to hand power to communities, but you know. It, it, it can't be another layer of government that people say, oh, well, you know, you're just on the gravy train looking for, for an easy ride and for a name for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and that's my concern when we look at layers, it's that it doesn't, as you said, Richard, respond to what people, people's experiences are of living in, the, in their communities. I mean, I would, when I'm challenged by people like the National Association of Local Councils, why don't you have one in Liverpool? And I am quite interested in doing this uh, now. But I would say, well, I actually, they do have a parish councillor. It's me. And they do have a district councillor. Uh, that's me as well. Oh, and by the way, they have a county councillor. And uh, that's me and my mates. So we look after, I don't know how big your wards are. We have three for 15,000 people roughly 11,000 electors and that's a lot of work to go into the grain of communities and our our ward is probably the wealthiest in Liverpool so we don't have the day-to-day -day grind that I used to have when I represented a very poor inner city ward mm. so I would welcome even if there was to be no change something below me to deal with some of the day-to-day -day items which I struggle with because I'm trying to look at the billion pound budget 
I think that's, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll ha- we'll ha- we will have another episode on local government reorganisation once the white paper comes out. But I think that's key is at what level do you set it? So, yeah. you know, my county seat has six and a half thousand households. So as opposed to my, my city seat, which is, you know, about 4,000, just, just maybe a little bit less. And it's how then, at what size is it practical to be a group of three of you to manage something that big? Because if it's too big, you, you, you miss out, like you're saying, Richard, on the local bits. And if it's too small, it's, it's inefficient. So, but like I said, we will, we will discuss that on, a, on a, another podcast. But Reese, I'm really interested in getting your perspective because, like I said, we, don't, we haven't had anyone on the podcast talking about Welsh Lib Dems at all yet, about where they feel, how, what, you know, it's a, it's a sad time when we don't have a Lib Dem MP in Wales. So how are, how are people uh, in Wales feeling after the Thornhill review and the general election? Is there a sense that, you know, there's a poss- we're on the way up or, you know, next year's elections? Are you thinking there's a good chance for gains? How, what's your take on Lib Dem life in Wales? <laughs> the, uh, the big question. Um, <laughs> I think we went into... I think we went after after the European elections, even though we didn't return an MEP in Wales, we had our highest ever vote share in, in those elections. And in some some parts, you know, in Cardiff in particular, we were by far, you know, the largest, you know, we were the lead party in, in the European elections in Cardiff. So that was a real boost for us. So going in 2019, we did, there was some sense that we might be able to pull this off. You know, we might mm. be able to, to return something more than just the one that we'd that we gained Jane in in the by-election um but you know Unite to Remain was a bloodbath mm. <laughs> it was a really difficult part time for the party with a special conference to determine what was going on with Unite to Remain and you know this there is still a lot of um healing to be done off the back of that and I think you know the, the comments that were made in in the Thornhill um report and I was on a member of the of the review panel was that we've just seen a decade of decline in Wales you know if you look at if you if you think of the problems that the federal party has you can amplify that on a Welsh level so I think you know the the part the proportional electoral system in Wales gives us some hope that we can return a group um to join Kirsty in the in the Senedd in May but we have a we have a lot of work to do and given how polarizing things are becoming with the independence debate um you know Ply Cymru are growing in popularity. You know, there are more people who would probably call themselves indecurious and, you know, uh, turnout is lower on a, in, in the Senate election. So you have to think about those people who are engaged in questions like independence. Are they going to opt for a unionist party that's not Labour if it's, you know, centre-left? So I think we have reasons to be optimistic, but we have one hell of a mountain to climb. Um, and then we've got we've got local government elections the year after, but there's lots of there's lots of there's lots going on in the party. We just need to make sure it's directed in the right way, and we have a new staff team coming on board, and you know we haven't had that. I remember I was a member of staff for the Welsh Party for a year after we after the the last Senate election in 2016, and that was that was tough. So it's mm-hmm. nice now to have a proper team of staff in the party, and I think you know a lot of people are starting to feel that we are now. Moving forward, we aren't just thinking, what are we going to save? It's, well, what steps can we take forward? But um, I don't think anybody's under any impression that it's going to be remotely easy the next, the next eight, nine months. What will they, uh, happen to UKIP? I know one of their 
more moderate members, if you can have a moderate UKIP member, <laughs> has, is now sitting as an independent. Uh, what's going to happen to them? Because you've got that absolute nut job, uh, Neil Hamilton. Uh, is he still the leader? I mean, I think th they dance around their handbags in terms of the leadership, don't they? Yeah, so there were, there were seven of them. There are now two as of last week because Caroline Jones left them to sit as an independent because she doesn't believe um, she, just, she doesn't believe in abolishing the Ross Assembly, which, uh, you know, surprise, surprise, is something that UKIP believe in as well. Um, <laughs> but what we're seeing now is that the UKIP and Brexit vote will probably go in, in large part to abolish the Ross Assembly. Um, mm -hmm. Now, the abolish the Ross Assembly party polled above us in the North Wales region in 2016. Um, and if the Brexit vote, if those voters are still motivated to go and vote as they were 2016, just before the, um, the referendum, then we're likely to see for the first time ever a group of people elected who are anti that establishment and anti that, that government and that parliament. Um, that poses this, some so, I was say, this is absolutely fascinating to me because I have <laughs> not as like someone who doesn't follow Welsh politics particularly I had no idea there was even a formal party against uh, having a Welsh yeah. parliament at all yeah. that, that, that yeah, is yeah. complete news to me and and it, it's interesting you're talking about and again interesting you talk about uh, independence because again you we hear about Scottish independence problems with Northern Ireland regarding Brexit regarding Welsh independence again it doesn't really cross the radar in England at all. And maybe this is where we should be a little bit concerned because it didn't really cross much of the radar Scottish independence until the SNP swept across the board uh, in 2015. Um, so, yeah, no, I, that's really interesting. And I say, please go on. So is, what, what percentage of the population believe that they want to get rid of the Welsh Parliament? What kind of polling does that say? So there's... It's it's mixed. There's there's not there is not a majority of people who believe in in getting rid of the Welsh Parliament. But what we have what we have seen is a growing number of people who are um, who do not believe that the Welsh that Wales should have more powers. So there has been since 1999 a growing number of people who've believed that we should have greater powers in Wales. We're seeing that slow down. So I think I I don't want to quote the numbers because they won't be, they mm, won't be right. Yeah. But you are looking at a sizable chunk of people um, who who of that polling sample believe that the, the Welsh Assembly, the Welsh Parliament should be abolished. Um, and that's, you know, in, in some in some ways in line with the, the growing number of people who are in support of independence, with both of which have stemmed from the Brexit referendum. So, you know, we don't talk about Welsh independence so much perhaps outside of Wales because we, you know, in comparison to Scotland, the debate is far further behind and we don't have the same, you know, institutions that Scotland would have to, to fall back on. But it is growing in popularity um, and um, we're being, in terms of our prospects for next year, we're being squeezed in the middle because mm -hmm. we're not, we're, you know, we're federalists so we can't, we don't, we can't explain to people what federalism means and we, we're not, we're not anti the Welsh Parliament. So, yeah. you know, with some of this mushy middle, as we always end up being, um, and that, you is know, it a big issue? is it high on the agenda for people? Um, I wouldn't say, as I, as I mentioned earlier, the problem we've got, or not the problem, you know, part of the, the, the picture is that um, turnout for Welsh parliamentary elections are lower than they are for general elections. 
So for those people for who the constitutional issue is an important question for them, they turn out to vote. Mm. So at that point, that election brings with it a more high stakes in terms of um, constitutional issues. Uh, but it also seems applied to have that debate. Um, and the Tories are moving further toward, you know, they're trying to prevent, as Cameron did, you know, that that flow of people away from the Conservatives towards UKIP and, and, and Brexit. So um, it's it's always moving and every poll says something different, but we are looking at a reduced Labour majority at the next election. Um, so we are looking at coalition at the next election, whatever form, whatever form that takes. But um, we do really, as a party, if we don't, if we don't explain to people what federalism means, I worry about, you know, where the country goes. Um, and, and we get lost in that argument around, or that debate around independence. So how's Starmer going down then in the, in, in, in the valleys that gave Labour, along with the, 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 the Scottish steel areas, such a big UK majority? Do they think he's just another bloody Englishman or do they see hope with him? I think... Um, so my seat of Cardiff North, um, the, the local party tried to deselect its sitting MP, Anna McMorrin, at the time, because she'd been critical of Corbyn. She stepped on from the front bench over, over Brexit. Um, because there was a, such a momentum insurgence in, in, in the party, I'm not sure what that looks like in, in the valleys. I'm from, I'm from the valleys and my parents are from the valleys and they will all tell you that people will just vote labor now um what's interesting is that labor lost one of their safer seats in the ronda in 2016 so i don't know um i think starmer is probably going down far better um than corbyn did i think people are less are more are happier to vote for a labor party with starmer than they are with with Corbyn, but I think for the vast majority of people, it is just I have always voted Labour and I will continue to vote Labour. Um, and that's well, Labour know, can't take that for granted, though. You know, no. everywhere where no. Labour has taken that for granted since, like I say, Scotland's gone, vast ways of the North have gone, vast ways of the Midlands have gone. Now, if Labour suddenly start thinking that, then the worry is, you know, that something else fills that vacuum. And you know, in the Northwest, me and Mitchell will know. Labour vote collapsed, we suddenly had a BMP MEP. You know, Labour vote collapsed in Burnley, we suddenly had a whole load of BMP councillors in Burnley. And it was only the Lib Dems that we, you know, who stood up in those points and said, this isn't happening in our towns. And we got out and, and, and changed that. So that, that, that's, I suppose, there, sometimes it can be, because when, like me and Richard do, we face against Labour a lot, and so do you actually, sorry, um, Reese as well. It can be very easy to see when Labour have been punching us repeatedly and attacking us for so many years to have a, a little bit of joy at their collapse. However, it, it has to be a collapse followed by Lib Dems taking those seats. Otherwise, something worse might come. It's well, interesting those... that in Liverpool, the Labour Party are still spending more time fighting each other than they mm. are fighting the Tory government. Uh, so this week, a Labour councillor has been suspended for a year uh, something to do, I, I didn't quite understand it, but something atrocious about Palestine and Judaism, uh, which is something that he regularly goes on about, so I didn't listen. Uh, but you watch the Twitter accounts. Uh, there's a Labour councillor, uh, I can't think of the exact terms, but basically describing uh, 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 Starmer as a 
a slimy, brutal-trimmed git or something like that, but really abusive language, which if a Lib Dem councillor was doing it, never, about anyone, never mind our own leader, we would take action about, but nothing seems to happen because of the constituency that she's in. But general impression is that, as I predicted, John, some time ago, that Here what would go. happen with momentum would happen with militant. Yeah. Uh, they come, they flourish, they scatter around, scurry around, and then four years later they get fed up and disappear. Yeah, yeah. Keyboard warriors uh, and yeah. Is that happening in Preston? We've never really had well, we've never really had massive momentum base uh, in Preston because the Preston Labour Party is so left wing anyway. They haven't felt the need to come in. Um, yeah. But even that, you know, I mean, Preston uh, Labour's, like I say, is very left-wing, voted for Rebecca Long-Bailey to be leader and all the rest of it. So they are um, on that wing anyway. Uh, but we, I'm from an actor, I mean, Preston, I always have to remember and remind a lot of Lib Dems is that most local politics is actually fairly weak. You know, when you see these absolute slobber knocker kind of fights going on, that tends to be in just a few areas. For the most part, it is, you know, a couple of teams of people and going at each other, that's it, rather than actually some all-out kind of waves. And, you know, and that's why we say to Lib Dems watching this podcast, if you have five or six people who are dedicated to winning a ward and doing it, you can make a huge difference in a, in a, in a city or, or win your first area just with a small handful of people, because actually you don't get that much resistance. So, and, and just to end this point, the, the seat we took off the Tories for the first time in 40 years uh, last year, they have yet to put out a leaflet in, you know, 14 months since we took a ward off them. That, and unfortunately that's the level of some of oppositions we get in some parts mm. of the country. Yeah. Uh, and I'd just like to say that it would be totally irresponsible for any Liberal Democrat to put out provocative tweets to keep stirring the flames inside the Labour Party. Absolutely. Absolutely <laughs> condemned. <laughs> but, um, but with that, I'll say this is, uh, like I say, our latest news update. I want to thank you, Reese, for coming on. We are, are, are you OK to come on again in the future, Reese? Would that be all right? You Absolutely, are now our... Yeah. Welsh spokesman on the Lib Dem part. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's been great catching up. Um, thank you to everyone who listens. Uh, we really appreciate it. We're, we're very grateful, all of you that tune in, both on YouTube, Facebook, or through your podcast providers. You can follow everything to do with the Lib Dem podcast at, at Lib Dem Pod. Uh, my name is John Potter. That was Richard Kemp. That was Reese Taylor. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back with another episode very soon.